0: What is the difference between a healthcare proxy and a living will? Can a healthcare agent rescind wishes stated on a MOLST form? Who is the rightful surrogate decision-maker when there aren't any documents and the patient doesn't have capacity?
1: Join us as we discuss these questions and more on this episode of Medical Time Out. Welcome to Medical Time Out, a podcast where we unpack all things palliative care. I'm Rashmi Kadilkar. And I'm Chinlin Ching. Today, we'll be discussing the different
0: types of advanced directives and what the New York State laws are around surrogate medical decision-making. Basically, how to make sure you're talking to the right person, and values and wishes are being honored.
1: So Chinlin, we will explore in future episodes the fact that medical decision-making can be very complex and very stressful. At the core of it all are the patient's values on life and death, death and dying. Why is it so important for us as a medical team to know that?
0: The way I approach what we call goals of care discussions or medical decision-making is that I think of us as translators. And what that means is when someone has a health crisis and is faced with important medical decisions that have to be made, our job is to translate that person's values on life and death and help them um, make medical or surgical interventions, uh, decisions. Um, what intervention, if any, will help them preserve those values? And what interventions, if any, will rob them of those values? Without knowing someone's values, you're wandering in the dark without a beacon.
1: So it sounds like that's why we might need forms like healthcare proxies or living wills or most forms. Can you tell us more about what they are and what makes them so important to have? And can you just have one of them to talk about all of these wishes or do you need most of them or all of them? So the most basic form we have is something called a healthcare proxy.
0: The form is the proxy, the person is the agent. And so you'll hear me use those terms intermittently. Um, A healthcare proxy helps you name the person or people whom you want to make decisions on your behalf if you were ever unable to make them for yourself?
1: I mean, to be clear, the healthcare agent is different from the power of attorney. So I know a lot of people use those terms interchangeably and think that they're the same thing, but the power of attorney is for financial matters and estate matters, things like that, whereas the healthcare proxy and the healthcare agent um, are for medical decision making specifically. Right. The reason the healthcare proxy form becomes
0: important is that there's a hierarchy of decision making that has been determined by um, something called the New York State Family Healthcare Decisions Act of 2010. Um, and I'm going to ask Nick to show a, a slide that shows the hierarchy of decision making that was determined. Um, if you don't fill out a healthcare proxy form, you cannot and you can't make your own decisions then this is the hierarchy, right? So number one is a court-appointed uh, legal guardian, if there is one, and if this uh, empowers you to make healthcare decisions. Number two is a spouse or a domestic partner. Um, number three is an adult child. Number four is a parent.
1: Five is a siblings. Um, and then lastly, a, a close friend. So what happens if you, you don't have a court-appointed guardian and you don't have a spouse or a partner and you do have several adult children, then who gets to decide? If you have a healthcare proxy form,
0: then your named healthcare agent is the primary medical decision maker. They trump all other decision makers, even if it's outside that hierarchical order. Um, If you don't have a form and you have lots of children, um, then they all have equal say, and they all have to agree um, on the decisions. Um, I remember a mess of a case from a few years ago um, where we were consulted to help a a man who was uh, intubated in the ICU um, during COVID. Um, Eight years prior, he moved to Rochester and he didn't have any family in the area. And it must have been around the time when he needed surgery because the form was filled out, uh, witnessed by nurses. He named his radiation oncologist as his healthcare Mm -hmm. agent. Um, It must have been like, in an emergency, who knows you in this area? And he named that radiation oncologist. Eight years later with uh, primary care doctor uh, visits every few months, nobody took the time to change this. So now he's intubated in the ICU with COVID. He can't speak for himself. Um, And he has a dozen family members clamoring to help, want to help make decisions. Um, I had to take several days and find this radiation oncologist. Um, because that was his named healthcare agent, it was never updated, and so then I had to find this radiation oncologist who didn't remember this man, who recused, who then recused himself from this role, and then next in line, according to the hierarchy, was his estranged wife who was living in Atlanta, who uh, didn't know, hadn't spoken to him in years. I had to find her, and she, then she recused herself, and only then could I go to the next in line, um, which is his adult children. Um, and there were several of them. So, um, the moral of the story is fill out a healthcare proxy form.
1: So, if you have that healthcare proxy form, um, then do you still need a living will? Do you still need a MOST form? I mean, it seems like it's kind of redundant, kind of morbid, having to think about what you'd want at the end of life and having to do it considering this aspect of it and considering this aspect of it and all of those things. At some point, can't patients really just trust that their doctors will do the right thing when the time comes? Um, And Nick, can you show the slide of the healthcare proxy and the living will, please? So this reminds me of
0: your story from the previous podcast when you mentioned the UK doctor being like, you know, patients just think that we'll we'll just do the right thing. But what's right for one person may not be right for the other person. Um, So... Getting your wishes in writing ensures that your voice is heard, um, even when you can't speak. A living will is different than a healthcare proxy. A living will is a legal document um, that requires a lawyer, um, but it's different because it has very basic, generic language about wishes for life sustaining treatments at the end of life. It'll say something like if I have an irreversible or incurable disease um, with no hope of recovery, then I Do not want uh, attempts at CPR. I do not want mechanical ventilation, but I do want pain management and I do want dignity at death. It's um, it's good because it it talks about end of life wishes. Um, What's difficult about living wills is that because it's so generic, it requires a provider to say, "Hey, we're here. You have an irreversible, you know, incurable disease," and for a lot of providers, that's really hard. But You know, living wills are so much more common um, because when someone meets with a lawyer and an estate planner and fills out a living will, they think they're being planners, right? I'm Mm -hmm. I'm doing a great job. I'm planning. I'm helping my family. But do that with a doctor and all of a sudden I'm sick. I'm going to die. I'm thinking about things that I don't want to think about. So emotionally, they feel really different. But a living will is better than nothing.
1: It's so interesting that the that the context makes such difference in how people pr- approach this planning. And I think that when you talk about sitting down and talking about your wishes and documenting your wishes with, with a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant rather than with a lawyer, the document that you would fill out then would be a most form, because a living will is something that you sign with lawyers that addresses your kind of overarching wishes for treatments at the end of life. Um, and a MOLST form, which stands for medical orders for life-sustaining treatment, um, that's what you fill out with a medical provider. That's that's one of the big differences between the two, in addition to the genericness of one versus maybe more specific specificity of the other.
0: Right. And, um, in New York State, our MOLS form is a beautiful, bright pink. And bright Nick pink. can show the next slide of what a MOLS form looks like. Um, fun fact about the MOLS form, it was invented in Rochester, New York. Um, the MOLS began as a community initiative in 2001 as a way for a group of doctors to improve end-of-life care. Um, the MOLST was created and adopted in 2004 in Rochester. Um, the New York State Department of Health then Um, spread it to all the counties in New York State in 2005. And then in 2010, when the Family Healthcare Decisions Act came out, the Department of of Health um, made it a a formal form um, for
1: uh, people to fill out about their medical wishes. And it's gone through a, a lot of iterations, um, even since, since 2010. Um, recently, uh, a change was made that allows um, advanced practice providers, so nurse practitioners or physician assistants, they're allowed to sign that form as a medical provider. Now it doesn't have to be just a physician. Um, and, a, and a change was recently made. There's a brand new form um, that started rolling out, oh, earlier this year, maybe late last year. Um, and so sometimes in, in different hospitals, you'll see different copies or different forms um, kind of running around, they're all valid, um, and there is one that is, that is the most recent uh, iteration of it. There's a lot to talk about when we, when we talk about MOLST forms, and we actually will have a future episode on how to talk about code status and how to approach um, the completion of a MOLST form with a patient and family. But let's talk for today about really the basic takeaways of that MOLST form we've talked a little bit about why it's important, um, and maybe you can expand on that a little bit. But more than that, once somebody signs a MOLST form, can anybody change it? Who can change a MOLST form?
0: So the MOLST form at its basic level is a medical order. So it's it's not written in stone, it's not like a legal document where you then have to go back to a lawyer and fill out a new form. Um, As the decision maker, as the person, you can always change your mind about your wishes for end of life. Again, the MOLS form specifically addresses interventions and treatments that you would or would not want um, at the end of life um, or uh, in those situations. So this includes attempts at CPR, uh, mechanical ventilation, artificial nutrition and hydration via, via a feeding tube. Um, it can say as much or as little as a person wants. But, um, you know, it, it's important because in, in America, if you don't fill out a most form, then the assumption is that um, the default is that we do these interventions. Um, so if you have any wishes that go counter to getting these things done, you really need to get it in writing or else you're gonna get them done. Um, And another important thing about moles forms is because we are so scared about thinking about death uh, in our culture, um, a lot of people are scared that if they fill out a DNR, DNI, or fill out a moles form, um, they're not gonna get the care that they want, like a blanket statement, right? Um, That's the fear. Um, it's hard to dispel that fear. And again, it's a case by case, sit down and take a medical time out. And let's talk about what you really think and what you really want kind of thing. But the way I explain it is this. Um, If you ask 100 people, when it's time for you to die, how do you imagine dying? Most of them are going to say, I want to die comfortably surrounded by family. Not many people are going to say, I want to die in a hospital hooked up to lots of machines and never see my family or my dog or my house again. So the MULS form is a way for you to divorce yourself from the hospital and make that happen. Um, That's how I I explain it. A DNR, DNI basically means, hey, when my time comes, I want a natural death. I don't want heroic measures. I don't want to be brought back to life with attempts for CPR. And I want to emphasize attempt. Just because we try it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Um, I, I just want to let go, uh, go with God, whatever that person's beliefs are. When I hear that, I want a natural death, then I say, you know what you want? Mm-hmm. You want DNR, DNI. So again, we're translators, right? We're translating this deep belief that when my time comes, when God calls me or whatever deity I believe in, I just want to go and I don't want to be in pain. I take that value and I translate it into a DNR, DNI. That's what it is. The other stuff about feeding tubes and IV fluids and coming back to the hospital, that's nitty gritty stuff when you're really knee deep in talking about hospice and end of life stuff. So again, it can say as much or as little as you want, but at its very basic, if you don't get it in writing, you are going to get all of the interventions when you die naturally. And a lot of times it's not going to be peaceful. You're not going to be surrounded by family and it's going to be pretty darn painful.
1: One of the things that I will say to people sometimes when we're talking about code status and and DNR, DNI, I think there are two things I like to emphasize with people. One of them is that DNR means do not resuscitate or do not attempt resuscitation. It doesn't mean do not treat. You can continue to get disease-directed therapy, you can continue to get other life-prolonging therapy, whether it's IV fluids or antibiotics or all kinds of things. It just means that when your heart stops, we will allow you to die that natural death. The second thing that I tell people um, is that there are lots of things that you mentioned that are on this form. There's the DNR, DNI. There's the feeding tube. There's most of those other things we have time to talk about. You know, you don't need to decide to start antibiotics a minute from now. You don't need to decide to start dialysis an hour from now. But if somebody's heart has stopped, you need to attempt CPR now or never. If somebody is unable to breathe independently, you need to decide whether to put them on a ventilator now or never. And so it's really helpful to people. I tell them that these are, these are the decisions that we have to make in a split second. These are the decisions we don't have the time to call and talk to your surrogate about. So, if you can tell us what your wishes are about are about these particular interventions, so that we can document them, it will be very helpful to to us, to the medical team, to know that we're honoring what's important to you, doing the things that you would like us to do, and not doing the things that you do not want us to do. Um, and I think that that's that's a point that that does resonate with some people when they look at it that way. Um, and I think that what that also speaks to is that you know, ideally. This most is being filled out while the patient um, themselves are able to do it, while they're able to make their own decisions known on their own. Because I think we should talk a little bit about who can rescind a DNR, DNI, who can change what's on a what's on a most form, um, and it's a pretty contentious topic.
0: It really is. Um, there's a lot of confusion about whether or not a surrogate decision maker can rescind or reverse a MOLST form that was previously filled out by the patient himself or herself. And so I'm going to put this out there um, as is sort of something that I teach and I have learned from our lawyers and ethicists through the years. Um, and this is also a law that was created when they made the MOLST form. And, and Nick, I'm going to ask you to show the next slide. This slide um, is a statement from MOLST.org, so M-O-L-S-T.org, this is actually a, a website that you can all go to. Um, it's for laymen and providers. It can educate you everything there is to know about the MOLS form. But um, specifically, you know, we see this all the time. Um, we'll, we'll look at charts and we'll um, we'll see providers say, you know, family reversed uh, DNR DNI patient is now full code. Now they're in the intensive care unit. It's not legal. Um, this is the quote: um, if the patient loses the ability to make MOLS decisions, and the patient has already made decisions to withhold certain life-sustaining treatments like do not resuscitate a DNR or do not intubate a DNI, the healthcare agent or surrogate cannot undo the patient's decision. If the patient loses the ability to make most decisions and the patient has requested full treatment for certain life-sustaining treatment, the healthcare agent or surrogate can make a decision to withhold and or withdraw other life-sustaining treatment on the most for which the patient requested full treatment as full treatment represents the standard of care.
1: It's a lot. <laughs> so in plain language, um, if a patient has a DNR, DNI, or the patient decides that they do not want a feeding tube, then the patient loses capacity. So it sounds like the patient's family cannot reverse those wishes. So is that true under any circumstance? Are there any circumstances under which um, a reversal of, of what a patient has said on a MOLST form should be considered? It's
0: case by case, right? As is all situations. Um, I'll give you an example. So, you know, and ex- what we want to hear, if a family feels very strongly about reversing what's already been decided, is really st- strong and convincing evidence that this is what the patient would have wanted. Um, an example would be, let's say someone who has a DNR, DNI, most form already, comes to the emergency department in acute respiratory distress, can't speak for himself, the son runs into the ED and says, um, you know, my, my dad wants actually to be intubated if he needs it. Just two months ago, we were at Thanksgiving, we were talking about something that happened to a sister, my aunt, um, she got a pneumonia from COVID, she was intubated, and she actually recovered. And she's in rehab now, and she's doing really well. And my dad told me, you know, if that ever happened to me, I would actually want a trial of intubation. But in those months, he hasn't had a chance to go to his primary care doctor yet and change his moles form. That's clear and convincing evidence of a thoughtful conversation about wishes, not driving in from North Carolina. There's always someone from North Carolina um, saying, I'm not ready for my mom to die. I want you to do everything, but not have any evidence of thoughtful conversations with mom. Just, I want you to do everything. Those are not situations where that daughter can reverse a DNR, DNI.
1: You see the difference? Right. So that clear and convincing evidence of a thoughtful conversation is, is what's really important. Um, and so what I'm really hearing is that if you do have strong feelings about what you want your medical care to look like when you come to the end of life, ideally get it in writing yourself while you can. Um, and if you have a lot of potential decision makers in your life, you know, you've got, you've got no spouse or partner, but you do have several children. Uh, for example, then what you want to do is kind of identify the person who knows your values the best, um, and who can then serve as your healthcare agent. So, what about that surrogate decision maker, that healthcare agent, or or somebody else in that hierarchy that that we showed earlier? When, when do we as providers uh, need to lean on them? And what, what are the responsibilities? What is it that we're asking them to do?
0: So there's something in medicine that we always talk about, which is capacity, right? So one of the first questions when we're asked to see a patient is, does the patient have capacity to make this decision? Capacity is assessed by medical providers. And capacity is more than being alert and oriented times three, which is what we often say. Mm-hmm. Um, there are actually four components of assessing a patient's medical decision capacity, um, and Nick, the next slide will show um, a table from up to date that shows those four components.
1: So, capacity is is kind of like informed consent. So, the person um, who is making the decision needs to be able to process the question that needs to be answered. Uh, And and capacity is situational, and so people can have capacity to make some decisions but not in others. So, for example, a patient might have the capacity to name a healthcare agent but not necessarily to make complex decisions about whether they would want attempts at CPR or intubation or that kind of thing um, because they just don't have the cognitive capacity at that point to put everything together in those complex decisions. But they do have the capacity to say, my daughter is the person who knows me and my wishes the best, and she's the person who I would like to serve as my healthcare care agent. Exactly. Don't make a global assumption just because someone
0: has dementia that they can't make simple decisions like who their person is. Um, so, yes, capacity is situational. So the four components of assessing capacity are understanding, expressing a choice, appreciation, and reasoning. So, number one, does the person uh, even understand the question? Have you removed any potential barriers of receiving information? Are they hard of hearing? Do they need their hearing aid? Do they speak a different language? Have you thought about a translator? Um, so, Or have they had a stroke where they can't receive information? So number one is you're evaluating that you've removed every possible barrier for receiving information. Number two is expressing a choice. So that's the verbal communication, same thing. Um, Have you thought about a translator? If one is needed, Um, are there cultural barriers that you need to address that might affect their communication? You know, I'm a female physician. Do they come from a culture where they don't speak to women? Um, Do I need to bring in a male physician? Removing any barriers of communication is very, very important. Um, And so, or did they, back to the stroke, did they have a stroke where they have expressive aphasia? Um, is this person intubated? Can they speak to you? Can they write to you? Can they is have you addressed every way of communication? Appreciation and reasoning imply the ability to weigh pros and cons, and that's what you meant by like informed consent. Can they take that information you've given them and process it on a higher level? Um, and and this chart shows not just. Um, sort of the definitions of each phase, but also some sample questions that providers can ask, open-ended questions that might elicit the response that you're looking for. Um, So it's on up-to-date. It's a good chart to look at. Every single medical provider can assess for capacity. It doesn't have to be a palliative care provider. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a psychiatrist or a geriatrician. Hospitals can do it. Med students can do it. Residents can do it. APPs can do it. Nurses probably do it every time they walk in the room right? Um, on, on some small level. Um, so that's the act of assessing capacity. In terms of the responsibility of a surrogate decision-maker, that goes much deeper. Um, it's very important to emphasize that we are not looking to these surrogate decision-makers to make life or death decisions, and oftentimes that's what it feels like, right? You know, I can't, I can't decide for you to kill my mom, we hear that a lot. Um, That is a weight that we should never put on family members and loved ones. I always say, I'm leaning to you because you know your loved one the best. I want to hear what makes life worth living, and then we will make that decision together. Um, So when you pepper a surrogate decision maker with clinical questions, do you want us to continue IV fluids? Do you want us to continue chemotherapy? Do you want us to put a feeding tube? Those are the wrong questions. Those are clinical decisions that should be made by clinicians. The questions you should be asking is, what makes life worth living for your mom? Um, And do these interventions help her attain those values? Those are the right questions to ask. And so remind surrogate decision makers that that we don't want to put the weight of the world on their shoulders. Um, What we want to do is hear all those beautiful stories of the family and the patient, wax poetic about life and death, and then sit together in a medical timeout and make those intervention decisions that make the most sense.
1: And the other thing is that the decision that we're asking the surrogate decision maker is not, what would you want in this situation? It's more, what would your mom want in this situation? If your mom were able to be back to the way that she was a year ago, if your mom were able to come off of that ventilator temporarily, if she were to open her eyes and wake up and talk to us, what would she say? What we're asking you to do as the surrogate decision maker is to really be her spokesperson for what she would have said. We're not asking you to make the decision. We're not asking you to say what you would want. And that's why those conversations in advance are are so important because then you can, you can communicate a decision that your loved one has already made um, and shared with you in the past.
0: Right. So when you're thinking about who you want to be your healthcare agent, it's not just about tapping a child or a spouse. It's about tapping them and then sitting down with them right. and talking about this. Again, create a space where you can talk about this very scary uh, period and then move on. Um, and, and that's really important.
1: So again, a lot of information um, that, we, that we talked about today. So let's review the things that we talked about. So with regards to advanced directives, there are three types of advanced directives, um, and all of them are important to look for every time a patient is admitted to the hospital or comes to the emergency department. One of them is a healthcare proxy. The proxy is the form, the agent is the person, um, a living will, and a most form, which is those medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. Um, so that most form uh, pertains to things like Attempts at CPR, intubation, feeding tubes, things like that. Um, We talked about how a surrogate decision maker cannot reverse a DNR-DNI that was previously signed by a patient unless they have clear and convincing evidence um, that it is what the patient would have wanted.
0: Right, Um, and the the next slide after the chart is, yep, some take-home points. In regards to um, the surrogate decision maker, um, they're important people to identify um, when the person doesn't have capacity to make decisions for themselves so again capacity is situational um, a person can have capacity for one thing one decision and not for another um, it's more than just being alert and oriented times three um, there's four components to capacity assessment understanding expressing appreciation and reasoning um, if there are, no advanced directives on file, then the New York State Family Healthcare Decisions Act of 2010 lists a hierarchy of surrogate decision-making. Court-appointed guardian, spouse or domestic partner, adult children, parents, siblings, then close friends. Make sure you're talking to the right people, not just the person standing at the bedside. And lastly, please remind the surrogate decision-maker that we're leaning on them to tell us about the patient's values. Um, we're not looking to them to make medical clinical decisions about whether or not interventions should continue or stop. Um, and we're not asking them um, what they would do in that situation. We're asking them um, about the patient. Um, tell us your loved one's values, and we'll translate them into what interventions make the most sense.
1: You know, and as always, um, you've heard this from us before. Our last bit of advice is to phone a friend. Um, family dynamics can be very complex. Um, and there are some families that we might see as quote-unquote functional, um, but nothing induces more dysfunction within a family system within a health crisis and discussions about death and dying. So it's important for you to understand the basics of of the laws surrounding uh, medical decision-making and the creation of advanced directives. But if you need more assistance, if you need more guidance, then please call a palliative care consult for help with navigating those more complex issues.
0: Yes. Um, and now we're on the segment, Rushmi, where we talk about our pet peeves and what drives us crazy. Um, do you have a pet peeve or something that drives you crazy about surrogate de- medical decision making? Um, for me, it's being not understanding the laws and, and letting surrogate decision makers make decisions that may not be in line um, with the values of the patient.
1: And I, I think, uh, you know, we've been working together for a long time, and I think a lot of our pet peeves are, are the same ones. Um, something that, that also drives me a little bit crazy is um, that sometimes we have evidence from talking to our colleagues that they have actually had very thoughtful discussions with their patients um, and are, are very clear on what their patients' wishes are. And then they don't write them down. Um, And so it's like the work was was never done. Um, And so another benefit, I think, of of some of these forms, that most form in particular, is that it's a a very, very clear and relatively quick way of writing down, of documenting the decisions that that you may have already had, um, which can make such a tremendous difference in, in what kind of care that we provide to the patient.
0: And now in the world of electronic medical records, it is easy for us to scan these documents into a patient's chart and it can be opened up at any hospital um, within our system. And that brings me to more of my pet peeves. I have many of them, which is um, it takes one second as a provider to look for documents in a patient's medical records electronically. Um, we've been called many times, right, on patients um, who have had these documents in their chart and they no one just no one looked, and so they were listed as full code in during the hospitalization when really they've had a DNR DNI uh, scanned in the chart. Number two, um, I already mentioned allowing family members to sort of willy-nilly reverse medical decisions. Um, And number three is not finding the right surrogate decision-maker and letting the wrong person make the medical decision. Um, There's a lot to undo after that. You know, this is the person conveniently standing at the bedside. It may not be the decision-maker that's been named. um, And then
1: it's a mess. So, all right, end rant. I'm done. So we hope that all of this is useful to you in your daily practice. Um, And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. Please send us any questions, any comments, any topics uh, for uh, further discussion. You can send us an email at medical underscore timeout at urmc.rochester.edu. This podcast is supported by a grant from the System Transformation Fund through the Safety Net and Program Support Office with UR Medicine. Um, We'd like to thank Dr. Kevin McCormick and Nancy Scott for spearheading the grant um, and for their commitment to palliative care education, um, to us, to to Highland, to the UR system um, throughout the region.
0: A thank you to Levi Ganji for uh, the music that we're using in our podcast, and a huge thanks to Nicholas Davis and Genesee Valley Media for recording, editing, and producing
1: this podcast. Um, And thank you to all of you for taking this medical time out with us. We hope you'll join us next time when we will actually dive into this topic a little bit further and talk about how to approach code status conversations and how to fill out that most form. Have a great couple of weeks.